Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Manuj Agarwal, an AI innovator, writer, and the founder and chief innovation officer of multiple startups. He's also, without exaggeration, the most optimistic person I've ever met. So I reached out to Manuj to discuss his glass half full view of AI and how it will affect the future of humanity. Hey Manuj, welcome to The Other Web. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you for joining me. So you're an expert in AI. How did that happen? Well, it's uh, it's a long story, long journey. But basically, my background is technology. And as I was uh, diving into technology, I saw the impact that it can create on uh, millions of people. And um, when we work with... Uh, so I'm, I'm a founder of technology consulting company. We work with uh, various clients from startups to Fortune 500. So we, we try to get involved in uh, projects which are, uh, you know, using cutting edge technologies like AI, blockchain. Um, we also focus on uh, projects that um, are helping humanity in some way. So we've done a lot of work in education, in healthcare, in real estate. Um, and so the idea is that uh, we keep trying to learn new topics, new ways of doing things that keeps us uh, updated and also provides better solutions to our clients. So uh, around 2006 is when we started working on AI-related projects. And since then, we have completed a number of them. And uh, now I'm considered one of the leading experts in the field of AI in the world. I have four patents in AI. So yeah, that has been the journey. So it looks like AI has a pretty broad range of applications and also a pretty broad range of techniques that people use. What everybody sees in the news right now is the generative AI unsupervised model kind of application. Is that what you typically work on as well? Or do you work on other kinds, other styles? Yeah, so uh, that's a very good point. Like AI as a field has existed for about, uh, f- uh, you know, four decades. Like since, even since 70s or 80s, like uh, it started. And there are various fields, uh, you know, one, for example, my patent uh, in one of, one of the patents is related to computer vision. So computer vision is a field of AI where we can create algorithms to process images and see uh, images and video and make the computer see what humans can see and analyze uh, you know, these, these images. So a practical implementation of that will be uh, diagnosing X-ray images, or things of that nature. Then there are other fields like natural language processing. And what we are seeing today chat gpt is is another field which is called a large language model so ai itself is basically an overarching umbrella under which these various sort of pillars stand and the idea is to use tremendous amount of data use compute power to find the patterns and then do something useful with that intelligence that artificial intelligence that the machine is producing by looking at the data Right. So as you know, what I do for a living is I actually run a company that also uses AI tools, except we tend to fight against these kind of generative models that are generating junk all over the place. And we are building the smaller supervised models that filter that junk out. So it's interesting to me as I observe this, that we are essentially getting into these sort of arms races where some people make AI that generates content, then other people have to make AI that cleans it out. How do you see this developing? Where do you see this evolving? See, I think uh, the underlying, uh, we have to go a little bit deeper here. The underlying factor is less about technology. It's about more human beings, what they are trying to do. The The problem is that everybody wants attention these days. Everybody's trying to compete. And the way that our world has evolved is uh, that we uh, consider 
Google, uh, I mean, this is a small example, but Google has become the, the gateway to all information available on web. Now, if, if you want to get attention, people try to game the system and you know produce this content uh, so that Google can uh, help them send some traffic, get them attention. But most people don't realize if you continue to use these AI tools, then even Google is basically AI algorithm. Like, you know, Google's uh, search engine is basically a bunch of uh, AI algorithms. So they will be able to decipher, okay, you know, what is happening. So as you said, it'll be an arms race, AI fighting AI, which is which is of no meaning, right? So the, the idea here is uh, you can turn this challenge into opportunity, just like what you are doing, where you can say, okay, Everybody else is going this way where they are producing all this junk uh, uh, content, which is not going to help anyone. So what can we do uh, on differently? Meaning, how can we add our uh, personality to the content? How can we add some emotions? Uh, how can we add some storytelling to the content that makes it more engaging, that makes it more readable so that it's not just to you know, uh, bait the search engines to give you traffic, but it's more meant for uh, you know, engaging your audience, meant for creating that connection, right? Gives me pause, which is when you say content that is engaging and you juxtapose that to content that games Google. Content that is engaging can also be clickbait, right? It just engages you for one sentence and then you realize it's complete nonsense. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, engaging in, again, it goes back to human nature, right? Like if we, if we again try to game the system, Yes, we can probably do that for a few uh, months, maybe years, but then ultimately in the long run, um, you know, uh, if you play a long game, then doing the right thing and engaging the audience throughout your uh, content will be the better strategy. That's a very optimistic view of human nature. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My view is slightly more cynical, I have to tell you, because it seems to me like as long as ads pay per click or per view, all content will essentially be just chasing clicks and views. And until we're able to change that incentive somehow and actually pay per quality or pay per truth, I don't think we're going to see any quality or truth come out. Well, um, as you said, um, you know, I, I, I have no uh, disillusions about human nature. Uh, of course, um, there are there's a lot of people um, not doing the right thing, but that's the nature of democracy. That's the nature of free speech. Everybody gets to, you know, say what they are willing to say. But at the same time, uh, Alex, I will also mention that, yes, the economy has set up, been set up by, you know, these these uh, paradigms of pay-per-click and everything. But you, even after somebody gets uh, to click on your link and goes on your page, if they don't find anything of substance, obviously they're not going to spend too much time there, right? So, so quality will always win, no matter what the intermediate step is to get to, to uh, you know, discover your content or you as a person. I think the long-term strategy should be to to provide some value, as you said, like facts and and value. That is what is going to um, uh, lead you to success in the long run, anyway. So, how do you see all of this developing in the next five to ten years? Let's say. See, uh, in my opinion, what is going to happen is, as I, uh, as we have seen, uh, the generative models will help us generate more content. Now, what will happen is, uh, what will become more valuable is not your ability to write, because you know that takes a lot of mental energy and skill to convert your thoughts into uh, words. Now, that is taken care of by AI. 
but what will uh, happen is your creativity your imagination will become more valuable so um, just like you know um, we can paint a picture with different mediums we can use different watercolors we can use like you know uh, oil paint what whatever that is ai is another tool to speed things up to to help us make make more productive so once you have the ability to utilize your time more efficiently focus on being more creative being more uh, emotionally connected being more uh, honest being more um, you know valuable and impactful in your content so that is where i think uh, the the value will be created eventually uh, the new uh, influencers will be those type of people who are creating true uh, true impact so i want to try to understand at least if we focus on written content because that's probably easier to articulate what exactly would that look like like i'm assuming you don't just mean going to chat gpt and saying write 8000 words about elephants right you have to be more specific than that otherwise it doesn't fall in the creative buckets so what would that command that i give the prompt look like yeah so so for example here here is uh, you know cuz i think we both uh, may agree that um uh, people get engaged when we when we um, invoke certain emotions in them right um, when we make them remember some past experience they had in their life uh, when we make them feel what we are feeling and feeling it doesn't come with facts so if i write an article uh, on elephants and it is all full of facts it is not going to engage anybody it's not you know you can find that anywhere but if i write a story about visiting thailand and going to a zoo and interacting with the elephant and you know having a good time that is going to engage a person because now i'm sharing a personal experience that immerses another person and then uh, utilizing details about my experience and and you know touching the skin of the elephant or whatever that is if you describe in great detail that is what is going to engage the the reader and in this uh, in this uh, you know our imagination can be expanded by using chat gpt we can add more uh, interesting facts that we may not be able to articulate um, uh, uh, using our own skill so if we use it uh, as that a uh, tool to enhance our uh, narrative that will be more useful than just saying chat gpt please write 8000 words for me interesting so you almost envision somebody writing the outline of the article like what should it be about what the message should be what emotions do I want it to trigger? And then a language model being the implementer of that. Exactly. And not only that, but I, uh, you know, we work with ChatGPT and we work with our clients helping them implement it. Uh, so what we do is the very first step is to add your own personality to ChatGPT because ChatGPT is like a chameleon. It, it can take on any shape, form, or, you know, like, like any personality. So in uh, telling these stories, it needs to come uh, as if you are speaking you are it needs to adopt your tone so what you want to do is you want to tell chat gpt hey behave like somebody like me i'm an engineer with 30 years of experience i've, I've you know i'm an expert in ai blah 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 these are my uh, like sort of uh, personal traits like i like to have fun i like uh, travel blah 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 so as you set up uh, you know this this persona for chat gpt now it starts to talk like you it starts to uh, you know uh, say things that you will say and then you can say okay you know i went to uh, this trip to thailand this is what happened uh, this is what i want to talk about so yes go ahead and write it and now 
you can get a much more uh, sort of a engaging content which is highly personalized to you and now you can also edit it like i generally edit like 10 20% of it uh, which which is always getting better and better but that element of your personality that will never go out of style no matter how advanced uh, ai becomes what you bring to the table uh, your background your history your experience uh, that is uh, uh, that is unique to you yeah so as an aside i've been playing with both chatgpt and bard and it seems like at least in my experience bard is slightly better at remembering my sort of persistent preferences like what kind of answers i prefer what kind of writing i prefer etc chatgpt seems to forget a lot and start from scratch mm-hmm. yeah 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 so that's an interesting thought now i'm trying to figure out what is the downside of this kind of approach one of the downsides seems to be that if i wanted to cook up some conspiracy theory then i could just list four unrelated facts that are somehow somehow connectable right and ask chatgpt just cook up a conspiracy involving the Clintons and those four facts. Now the question becomes, how do people like me filter that out so it doesn't actually spread all around the world and makes people shoot up pizza parlors? Sure. So let's uh, think about that, right? So um, again, um, let's not talk about the technology. Let's talk about the human being doing these things. Because conspiracy theories are not new. They, they, it ha- I mean, humans did not have to wait for AI to be invented to say oh you know now i'm going to create conspiracy theories they have been around since ancient times right not even like uh, with the advent of internet but back then when even books were not uh, available so the idea behind conspiracy theories are basically just people uh, um how can we expressing their um, negative emotion and doubt and fear and then making things up uh, in their own mind and treating it as a fact so ai is uh, right now at least is it is at the same level like you know if if people make up stories ai can make up stories right so the idea is that it is up to the person to fact check everything the the writer of the uh, the content like if if you're you if you're using chat gpt or bard or any other tool to generate content and then publish it it is up to you to fact check it the second uh, onus lies on the re- reader as well so that you know we read so so much information is coming our way all day are we naive enough to think that everything that comes our way is accurate i i'm i at least i am not right so i always fact check uh, two or three places and reliable sources before i say okay yeah this i can think that this is the actual fact or this is just another theory or somebody just venting online or whatever it is i don't think there's going to be a, a solution to this as long as humans uh uh cannot give up their tendency to let go of the fear and and dive into curiosity understand the environment around us because there is a reasoning and explanation to pretty much everything in my opinion so i guess the part that i was trying to articulate is that at least today cooking up a conspiracy theory is expensive right it takes time you need to research you need to actually come up with some coherent way to connect the dots whether those dots are real in your mind or imaginary from the beginning right um and fact checking was also expensive right the concern that i have is if cooking up a conspiracy becomes essentially zero cost can we make the fact checking also zero cost or is it now becoming an arms race in which the conspiracy theorists 
want potentially. Okay, so let's answer it this way, right? So obviously, fact checking will become zero cost, no doubt in my mind, because at the end of the day, it is it is uh, information all available online, and uh, if the computers are smart enough to generate the content, they should be even smarter enough to say, okay, is this correct or not, based on you know reliable sources. Uh, so definitely that will be available when i can't say the second thing i will say is no matter how uh, how much content you produce let's say you produce 300000 documents talking about same conspiracy theory if that does not resonate with other people because a conspiracy ha- is like a child it's like a human it's like life so if that uh, conspiracy does not resonate with a whole bunch of other people. It will just die off because we live in a very, very noisy world. You know, fight for attention is what we are. We, we started the conversation that we are all fighting for attention, right? So even a conspiracy theory is going to fight for attention, and unless and until it resonates, it it creates some uh, very strong emotions in other people. It says, hey, you know, you are all all the victim of the same thing and sort of you know get people enrolled into that conspiracy it is still not going to actually turn into a conspiracy it will still be like you know a random thought that a, a person came up with so so the the amount of data you can uh, create the you know the fact checking all that that is one on one side but how in touch are you with other human beings so that you can actually you know propagate this this idea in millions of people, that is a totally different ballgame, right? Yeah, but at the same time, it seems like we've already delegated that job to ChatGPT. So it's not the writer that needs to figure out how to connect the dots in a way that people would believe and click, right? It's the the entity that has already gone through uh, a lot of human feedback, reinforcement learning, and it knows what people like and what people don't like. No, 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 no. So let let's agree to disagree there, okay? Because Chat GPT is uh, as smart as it is, it is still quite dumb. So if you don't ask the right questions, it is still not going to give you the right answers. Believe me, you can see most people are writing the same type of content which is not engaging. They're just writing, give me 10 facts about smoking, give me 10 facts about uh, social media. So these kind of things are all in the past now because information is everywhere. Nobody wants those 10 facts. People really want a, a real experience. They want a real a connection. So, so that's my opinion. No, I agree with you. I don't actually claim that it is smarter than it is, right? I'm just saying that figuring out what humans like is actually something that is, I don't want to say it's good at it, but it's good at it in some ways almost too much, right? Uh, we did one experiment recently where we actually were developing a model that tries to predict what emotions an article would trigger in people. And we figured we are going to test how ChatGPT would annotate those articles, right? To see if it matches what our human annotators were doing. And it's a great way to uncover some biases in ChatGPT, right? Like, for example, every time that we took an article about abortion, if the article was describing an event that increases access to abortion, then ChatGPT thought that it would make people hopeful and patriotic and positive about the future. If the article described an event that was restricting abortion access, then ChatGPT predicted that it would make people depressed and infuriated them, right? Now, why would it have this kind of bias? It seems to me like the only 
plausible answer is, well, the people who were used for the reinforcement learning, who gave it the human feedback, were all young liberals for the most part, because that's the available pool of $15 an hour wage workers that OpenAI had, right? So it did figure out what people like. It was just that group of people, right? And now it just applies that assumption to the rest of the world. But at least with regards to predicting what emotion something would trigger, I think it did that perfectly for the group it was trained on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, no doubt there, there is going to be gray areas. There's going to be a lot of uh, sort of iterations done. I think there's going to be some regulations put in place. So we are in a very, very early stage. But all, all uh, from my point of view, as much as I know about human nature, um, I believe it is going to cause some disruption in the short term. But in the long term, it's going to be, uh, you know, sort of all normalize the way that we are dealing with. Because all these problems we are talking about, they even exist today, right? Conspiracy theories exist today. The, uh, you know, fake videos, all of that stuff exists today as well, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not saying that it will create a new trend, right? I'm just looking at it and thinking the trend that the internet already created which we're still kind of trying to digest and figure out, is now getting accelerated even more. And so now it probably becomes even more urgent for us to figure out how we handle this transition and get to this bright future or the next enlightenment or whatever that is. Because last time when we went from the printing press to the enlightenment, it was 200 years of holy wars and witch hunts and inquisitions, right? Um, the Enlightenment was good at the end, and we got literacy in Europe and all of these things, right? But th those 200 years were pretty painful, um, and now we have nukes. And so I'm kind of hoping that we can accelerate that. That's why I'm asking these questions, to see if there's any tools that we can create to get there faster. See, uh, the, the opportunity is uh, ripe. Like, you know, uh, uh, the CEO of IBM has said that AI is going to add $10 trillion to the world economy in next seven years, Right. And the world economy today is $80 trillion. So 12.5% will be added in the next seven years. So all these problems are opportunities to create solutions that will bring immense amount of wealth to people who can you know, utilize this technology and uh, solve these problems. Because every new technology is obviously going to solve a problem, but it also creates some problems. That's a, that's a cycle of evolution, right? So, um, but the now the the... The good thing is that uh, in creating that problem, we are also creating uh, uh, an ally and a super intelligent ally, which can now help us solve those problems. So let's try to dig into that. We've talked a lot about language and specifically generating language. What other types of things do you see AI helping us with in the next five to 10 years? See, I, I believe what will happen is we are moving into an age of hyper-personalization because um, with industrialization, what happened was we got mass uh, uh, manufacturing of goods, but we lost the ability to personalize things. Meaning, you know, when we create a, a shoe, we can only buy it in maybe 10 sizes. When we create a t-shirt, we can only buy it in like five sizes and five colors. Um, when we create uh, pharmaceuticals, medicines, uh, you know, we can only test it on like so many people and five to 10% of the people are going to have side effects. But with AI, what we will be able to do is we will be able to like hyper-personalize everything and say, okay, uh, when we visit the doctor, we can say, hey, you know, I want a medicine uh, uh, created def specifically for me based on my DNA, my genome, and in such a way that I have zero side effects. 
I want to, uh, you know, buy uh, clothing or whatever personalized to me, which which will be actually created for me, my liking, my size, uh, all of these things. And then uh, platforms like uh, ChatGPT, I believe what we'll see very soon is go- is that there's going to be ChatGPT for engineers, ChatGPT for uh, financial analysts, ChatGPT for doctors. So there's going to be like, you know, specializations of AI for helping these specific uh, professions uh, and, of course, uh, helping consumers get personalized uh, products and services. So the personalized products like clothing, that part's a given. It, it makes sense that we want to have that. I'm curious how would personalized medicine work, given that even for the medicine that we're using right now that works pretty well, very often we have no idea what the mechanism of action is, right? So like if you take a Tylenol and then you ask a biochemist, how does a Tylenol actually work? The answer is, we don't know. It seems to kind of do what ibuprofen does, but the mechanism is not actually there. So like I can see personalizing, but doesn't it need to understand things first? Well, that's the thing. Um, with AI, we will be able to accelerate our learning of the human body itself. In fact, there are companies right now doing what I just said. Uh, they are taking DNA samples and then uh, creating customized nutrition plans, c- creating customized, um, you know, even even supplements. So that's already happening today. Uh, if we go, uh, you know, uh, and this is a political issue. So whether you like it or not, whatever your view is, uh, I don't want to get into that argument. But a COVID vaccine, for example, uh, it takes about, uh, you know, uh, 10 years to create a vaccine. But we were able to create that vaccine in few months because of the use of AI and simulating the effects of uh, that compound on human body and uh, and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, give us the freedom to get out of our home. Otherwise, most likely we'll still be under lockdown right now. Yeah, for what it's worth, my view on vaccines is pretty normal, I would say. I got three jabs because that seemed like the correct number, right? When people tried to sell me on the fourth one, I looked at the data, I said, "Mm, I'm not sure. But the first three were obvious, right? I think I may have always done it on the day when it became available. Uh, Because like you said, like I wanted the freedom to actually travel and go abroad. Um, I wanted the freedom to do stuff. And here's another thing where I probably differ from others. I think that it was a low consequence decision. Like, like it was a very big, very heated debate for people, but ultimately the risk of the disease and the risk of the vaccine for somebody like me was very low. Like, and so the deciding factor was travel <laughs> and being able to just answer a question in a way that would make people leave me alone, right? The health effect were almost negligible here, but people were making such a, such a big deal over them. Yeah, there, there's a lot of debate still going on. So it's uh, like I, I leave the debate to others, but I'm just showing you the power of AI and, and what we talked about personalized medicine. It's it's already existing today. It's not it's not something science fiction, but it's only going to get more and better and better. Well, I hope so, because I could say that the things that exist today are fairly gimmicky still. Um, I've actually experimented because I tend to test a lot of things on myself because like I said, everything with putting a chemical in my body, it's usually pretty low risk, right? Well, depends on the chemical. <laughs> depends, right. I, I'm not experimenting on cyanide. But <laughs> but my point is there were even a few services where you got to test the your microbiome and then they would customize diet plans and things like that to you. So I've tested several of them because 
it would be nice if I knew what I digest better and what I digest worse. And I could say that every single result I got from them was completely generic nonsense. It had nothing to do with somebody actually analyzing the DNA and knowing what it means. So that is still at the stage where, yeah, it's, there's a lot of marketing hype. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, every technology takes time, but uh, you know, if you if you look at the trends, for example, CRISPR, uh, you know, which is uh, gene editing, it can actually, um, uh, you know, gene therapy, for example, these kind of things are making progress. Uh, of course, um, on case by case basis, it may or may not be effective, but you also hear positive uh, impact of these technologies. Like some people got cured of some horrible diseases by going through gene therapy or or what have you. So. Technology is still very, very early, but um, to answer your question about five to 10 years, I, I believe we will be much, much closer to these these things. These will be much more impactful, powerful technologies. So that raises an interesting question, right? There's uh, Peter Thiel, I think, is known for complaining that all the innovation today happens in the world of bits and not in the world of atoms. But you're predicting that at least with AI, that bridge will finally be crossed and our innovation in bits will actually help us innovate more in atoms, right? Actually, that is right, because, um, because you know, human, human, uh, human mind is obviously very versatile, very creative, very powerful, but at some level, we are also bound by own uh, imagination, by, bound by own boundaries that we put on our own thoughts. So with AI, and think about like when AI uh, is combined with quantum computing. I mean, that that's a world that we don't even understand yet. God knows, you know, what will that bring? But the trends you are seeing is that we are getting much, much more deeper understanding about the world around us, not only around us, but going to uh, outer space and also understanding the subatomic, uh, like the, the science of the small and the science of the big, right? All of that is being understood at an unprecedented rate. And that's because we have so much more compute power. We can do more calculations. We can understand the the, the world around us in, in a better way. So besides things like medicine, where else can we see the world of bits starting to improve the world of atoms? It seems like things like transportation haven't improved in at least half a century, right? Is there a way to try to apply things to that? Well, I will I will disagree with that, right? Like, so um, you you can see uh, there was not a lot of uh, progress made in uh, uh, in transportation, but now you can see like hyperfast uh, rails. Uh, there are some planes which are hypersonic. They are coming back now. I mean, self driving cars are a reality. Uh, in my opinion, in the next ten years, there's not going to be any uh, driving job left. So there are about ten million people their sole job uh, uh, in, in US alone, 10 million jobs are dependent upon driving. They're all going to be gone, right? So so I will say that we are making quite b- uh, good progress, but it's always difficult to see the progress day by day. If you stand back and you know chart a graph uh, uh, and then say, okay, what where were things in 1970 and where are things today? I think we'll see a huge progress there. So the interesting thing is that progress is really nonlinear, right? So if you look at speed trains, then I'm sorry to say, but 1970 was pretty good and Shinkansen and other trains like that are still the fastest in the world, right? Self-driving cars is an interesting topic. Just because I've been involved in that market quite a bit back in the day, 
Um, I'm almost forced to be a skeptic or at least to be slightly more conservative than what the industry predicts because the industry has been predicting self-driving cars around the corner for 15 years at least, right? And every two years, it's two years away. And then after two years, it's another two years away. But it seems like it's not quite converging. And I don't know if we're just in the wrong paradigm and we need to invent something new or if all we need is more compute. Yeah. See, um, you know, as an engineer, I, I say this, like, you know, when when I write a program, um, I have a fairly good idea in my mind how the program is going to be written, how how much time it'll take. But then when you test the program in the real world, uh, all hell break, breaks loose and then you have to debug it and figure out, OK, what are the problems? And yes, sometimes um, things do not work out. And uh, you have to find workaround. You have to find solutions. So, uh, you know, uh, let's take the example of self-driving car. Right now, we are thinking about self-driving car. I mean, again, in my opinion, it is a reality as real as it can get in a beta state, like early stages, right? So it's not a, something that we just watch it in movies or read it in books. We can actually buy a car which has a feature called self-driving. How well it is, debatable, right? Now... Yeah, it occasionally totals your car by going into the middle separator, but otherwise it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. So the, now now think of a solution where now we are dealing with an individual vehicle which is trying to make a decision on where to go. Imagine a world where every vehicle is uh, is sensing where things are at and exchanging that information in real time with the other vehicle, right? So that now becomes a network of vehicles all helping each other drive themselves and so um that that feature is not that far either right so um oh, that that feature is probably easier to implement than implementing one ai based vehicle in the world of stupid humans right exactly exactly so my point being that uh, everything takes time everything takes adoption going back to our conspiracy uh, theory example even if the technology exists today uh, it takes time for people to adapt that technology. And uh, when mass adoption happens, that's when you see, okay, the world has changed. Because uh, if only few enthusiasts uh, use the technology, it is not going to make a dent in the world, right? Right. And with cars specifically, some numbers that are probably outdated, but at least they were true when I was working in that market. The average car on the road in the US is 11 years old. And the replacement cycles of cars, i.e. when a technology that used to be state-of-the-art goes out of the cycle, essentially, is more than 30 years, right? So this is why typically when we mandate things like uh, safety belts, we say, except for cars that were built before 1982, right? Because some of those older cars are still on the road. So it's going to be a fairly slow adoption. And my concern when I look at the way that they behave right now is that it's not compute that we're missing. There is something in the paradigm that needs to shift in a very non, in a very binary way. So the analogy that I would use is like with chess computers. Computers at some point became better than humans in 1997, right? But they were still playing like computers. They were still weird until Alpha Zero, and then Alpha Zero suddenly looks like the best human that ever existed. And since I'm I played chess all my life, I look at those games and it just seems like a classic game I missed in the 70s or something. It doesn't look like a computer playing. But I think cars 
when you turn on the self-driving features, they drive like robots, not like humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, as I said, like we are we are living through the evolution of technology. That's how every technology develops, right? Like if like even if you look at the earliest earliest cars, uh, you had to start it with a hand crank, right? The chassis were like I think wooden. There was no doors. Like it was like literally just you know just a. Uh, a wooden platform on on four wheels, very unsafe, very, you know, a lot of pollution and all that. So we have come a long way. So we have to consider that uh, internet itself is about maybe 30 years old, you know, uh, in its in its uh, uh, form uh, that, that we know of. AI as as a technology has been around for a while, but it, really it, ha- it is basically just 13 years, 12, uh, 15 years old. So Compare that to industries like automobile, which has had like at least 100 years to mature, construction industry, oil and uh, energy industry. So you can imagine we have a long way to go to develop and perfect these technologies. But the direction is clear, right? So if you're an entrepreneur today, what are some opportunities that you should be looking at that most people aren't discussing yet? Yeah, so in my opinion, you know, we should look at uh, solving big problems and solving it in a way where we say, okay, uh, let's not try to speed up the solutions that we are using today. Meaning if we are generating content and it takes me one hour to write an article, then I just shift that uh, responsibility to chat GPT and do it in five seconds. But think about, okay, what does the future need? Uh, future needs a green uh, environment, sustainability. We need cure for cancer. So when you start to think about these big problems, then you start to break down those big problems into smaller chunks and say, okay, what can I do? What is my passion which can contribute to this big problem? And what new ways of thinking, new products and services? Because trust me, AI is a total paradigm shift. So think about how we will manage how we will show up in the world if we all had an employee who is available to us 24-7, who has passed a medical exam, who has passed a legal exam, a bar exam, who has passed a PhD in mathematics, physics, history, anthropology, and that employee is available to us 24-7, right? Not only it is available to us, but I can hire one for each of my employees. So if you have that kind of firepower, what will you do in the world? If you start thinking like that, you know, the ideas that come are totally mind-blowing. So I'll I'll share my mission in life, which may sound crazy to a lot of people. I want to use technology and AI to help 20 people win the Nobel Prize. That, that sounds awesome. I have to say, after you said, imagine you have an employee that has that passed the law exam, has a PhD in mathematics. I keep wanting to ask, are you sure that he's your employee and not the other way around? <laughs> well, uh, the, the good thing is that, uh, in fact, it is actually your employee. I will say that. This is one debate I have uh, with a lot of people uh, who say, oh, what if AI becomes sentient and becomes self-aware and uh, think about taking over the humanity? Then I ask them, do you know there are 8 billion people on this planet? How many of them are actually self-aware? We are talking about human beings, let alone AI. So let's first figure out how to make humans more self-aware, and then we'll figure out how to make AI more self-aware. Yeah. Um, my retort to the same question is along the same lines, but I would say, do you know of a, of a robot that can open doorknobs consistently? Yeah, yeah. Well, if not, we'll just lock the AI in one room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. 
I think Boston Dynamics has a robot that opens the doors. They have some videos out there. They do have, but it's still a consistency consistency problem. As long as the doorknob is always at the same height and in the same location, it can. But it's a surprisingly difficult problem in robotics. Um, so we talked about self-driving, but doorknobs are still a challenge. Yeah. So you're a very hopeful guy. It seems like you're very optimistic. I like to end the podcast always on a hopeful, optimistic note. Paint the most rosy but realistic picture of the world in 10 years to me. Okay, so in my opinion, I think we are heading towards a utopian society where everybody will be able to afford uh, the lifestyle and all the things that they want in life. Uh, if they are able to, like, uh, life will become so much easier in from that aspect. In fact, I believe that we are very close to a universal basic income where people will not have to slave for 40 hours a week to to make any income because most of the world economy is right now a service-based economy. You know, 80 trillion is the total economy. I, I believe, you know, out of that 80 trillion, 50 to 60 trillion is just service-based like banking, insurance, and those type of institutions we need to keep ourselves in, in check. So if AI starts to help us with all of that and we combine technologies like blockchain and, and other technologies, we mentioned nanotechnologies, uh, the world will become so much more uh, enjoyable. Our jobs will become more enjoyable. We will not have to do the mundane things that we hate doing, but we'll be able to focus on the things we love doing. And that that's the kind of life, that's the kind of world we are moving towards. All right, excellent. On that hopeful note, thank you so much for joining me today. It was an awesome discussion, and I hope to talk to you again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks. This has been another episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more discussion of news, media, and the future of the information ecosystem.